Well, we come then to the, uh, the third study in our series and the final one for the day. To give you a sense of relief, you've been through the two hardest ones. Hardest in two sense of the term. One, for some of you, it's perhaps your introduction to John's style of writing. And as we've said, and I'm not going to keep repeating it, John's style is totally different from any of the other writers of the Bible. I, I didn't make the comment, but I could that if the Apostle Paul, for example, in some of his epistles, said some of the things that John said in his Gospel record, we'd have doctrinal problems. You know, like Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, or something like this. But it's John's style of writing in which when he looks at Jesus, he looks right through the flesh and he sees God. Therefore, in all of the discourses and in all the discussions, what you hear Jesus saying is really the words of God. He is speaking like his father would speak if he was here. Now naturally then, and I guess the word naturally can apply in several ways, the average human being doesn't understand it. It's, it's a different language. And of course what we've said before is that John doesn't take us up in easy stages, he takes us up in one big jump. So first and foremost then, you've had to adjust to that. And as you read more and more of John, it therefore becomes easier and easier. And, and can I make an appeal to you that after the weekend's over, I know there's other studies you'll be doing in the Ecclesia, you're doing Daniel and things like that, try to set aside of time just to keep reading and reading and reading John. And I will absolutely guarantee, absolutely guarantee, that after some time of doing this, just a matter of a few weeks, you'll start to say, I, I, I understand what he's saying. Instead of me feeling sorry for Nicodemus, and I suppose we could have in a sense, I can see what the Lord's saying and I can see Nicodemus's problem. I can see the woman of Samaria's problem. Now we're going to look at a group uh, who uh, saw a miracle that the Lord performed and uh, at the moment we might say, well, I can see where they're coming from, but I think by now we're going to start to see, I can see how the Lord looked at them. Now that's the key then to, to John's Gospel. As we find ourselves uh, somewhat unconsciously being lifted up to a higher level. We, we can't do it, of course, if we are unconscious in the literal sense of the term, so we'll all try and keep awake. And you've been very good, by the way. But what I'm saying is, this change from natural thinking to the beginning of spiritual thinking is something that happens sort of unknown to us in some respects. Other people will see it more than we see it in ourselves. What I said earlier was not a joke when I said, the more we study our Bible, the worse we see ourselves to be. That's what Paul says in Romans. And I have no doubt that some of you, whatever background you've come from, you know, 12 months or something like a Bible study, I, I would be... I was going to say I bet, but that's not a good word, is it? Um, <laughs> what's another adjective? I would feel fairly certain that some of your friends from previous times are saying, hey, what's happened to you? You've changed. You don't do this. You don't say that. You don't, you know... And they would have seen changes that probably you haven't seen in yourself. And in fact, probably what you're saying is, I'm hopeless. Because you've studied your Bible, like I study my Bible, and I'd say, I'm hopeless. You know, because the more you study... If Paul could say, oh wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, where do we stand? Well, the thing is, he'd studied his Bible more than us, so he saw what flesh was. So this is what John's Gospel is going to do, us, do, do for us in a unique way 
It presents to us how God sees people because Jesus Christ in John's Gospel is God manifest in the flesh. For those who weren't here, he's the king in Matthew. He's the servant in Mark. He's the man who God will send back to judge the world in Luke. But in John, he is God manifest in the flesh. So we are seeing the thinking of God in a way that it couldn't be expressed in a more elevated way. So it's hard to get up there. Now in that sense, therefore, our first two studies were the hardest because we had to start to adjust to it. The other thing too is uh, they were the most packed because one, we were laying a foundation in the first study and in the second study, uh, Christ's discourse with Nicodemus had a few other themes in it. From here on, it becomes more exhortational. Specifically tomorrow morning in John 10, the Good Shepherd, and in John 17, that beautiful prayer that the Lord offered, they will be directly exhortational. This one we're going to do from John 6 now is still basically expositional, but it's sort of the link between, between the two. So I hope that makes you feel better in a way, not feel better that you're not as bad as you think you are by studying your Bible, you know, that sort of thing, but that uh, I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. Those of you who sat through the two Daniel ones, they were tough studies. Not, not every talk I give uh, is as detailed as that. I was just saying to Brother David uh, out there a while ago, uh, the studies I like are those which have a simple theme, you can put it all in a box, we go bang, 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 it goes from start to finish and people go away and say, that was easy, I got it. And fine. But not all studies fit that pattern and especially when you're doing verse by verse ones. A thematic study you can just pick up and you can present it how you like. We have literally been thrown in the deep end, as they say. Some people learn to swim that way. And that's what John is like. Okay, well, having said that, uh, what we're now coming to is, is something a little bit easier. But, and it's not a big but, it's only a little but. We are now introduced to another aspect of John's Gospel that I haven't mentioned before and that you might like to note. I haven't written on, on an overhead transparency, but if you want to take a note of it, uh, and we can do this a bit interactively because that will help a bit. Have you noticed that John records some miracles? Do you know how many miracles he records? You might say, well, who's going to go through and count them? Well, actually, it's quite significant. And if anyone's done a study of it, they do know that there were actually eight miracles in John's Gospel. But John never calls them miracles. It might come over as miracle in the King James Bible, but that's a bad translation. John always calls them... Anyone know what they called? Signs. Yes. So what we're going to be introduced to here in John chapter 6 is the fourth, I think. It's the fourth of the signs of John's Gospel. So in just a minute, I'll list off quickly what the eight are. This is the fourth sign. And what's going to happen is that the Lord actually performs a miracle. He multiplies the loaves and fishes. And in anybody's language, that is a miracle. But what the Lord says is, I want you to follow me, not because you saw the miracle, but because you understood the message behind that miracle. The Lord didn't come into the world to cure people who were blind, uh, to multiply loaves and fishes to feed people. He came into the world to get rid of sin. I suppose we can all remember the story where there was that lame man 
And he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. The Pharisees and that said, who's he to, to forgive sins? Well, he said, I could just as easily have said, take up thy bed and walk. But you see, why was that man lame? That man was lame because right back in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God brought into the world a punishment. That punishment in one word was death, but it wasn't just death, it was diseases, it was famines, it was pestilences, thorns and thistles and all of those sorts of things. So in curing that man, the Lord didn't want to go away and have people say, he's marvellous, isn't he wonderful, he's cured that man. What he wanted that man to understand was, I've really come into the world to cure something greater than that. I've come into the world to eradicate sin. And when sin is eradicated, then all these other things ultimately will be eradicated too. So you see, that's why the Lord would say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Not that he was particularly forgiving any sins of that man. That man wasn't lame because he'd been a sinner. Now you see, that's the language of the Bible and that's what the Lord is doing. The Lord is looking through a situation and he's looking to the real problem. A little message here again. In ecclesial life we go through times of trouble. Uh, a brother or a sister has uh, a difficulty. I'm trying to avoid the word problem. They have a difficulty. And we say this person's difficulty is um, they haven't been to the meetings for six weeks. That's not the problem. The problem is what has caused them not to be to the meeting. Probably a bad example. I'll think of some better ones for tomorrow. But what I'm saying is the Lord would look past the symptom of the problem and he would try to solve the problem. Now that's really what's happening in John's Gospel. He performed eight miracles. The last thing he wanted to do, was for people wanted to happen rather, was for people to follow him because he was a miracle worker. I intimated this in an earlier study. That was the most difficult thing the Lord had to handle. He could handle the Pharisees, handle the Jewish rulers, no trouble at all. But when people followed him for the wrong reason, and that's what happens here in John chapter 6, he becomes uh, very distressed about it. Are we following him for the right reason? That's what we've been talking about. Are we following him because he fills our stomachs with bread? That's what, we haven't read it tonight, but it's here in John chapter 6. Uh, I can see it here in verse, uh, uh, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you are seeking me, not because you, and by the way, saw the miracles is a very bad translation. That in fact was the very reason they were following him, because they saw the miracles. It should be because you perceived the sign. You're not following me because you saw that that sign involved in the miracle of the loaves and fishes pointed forward to something greater, you're following me because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Are we in the truth because, we, because of what we can get out of it? Or are we associated with the truth because of what we can put into it to the glory of God? And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in writing to the Romans, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, of all of the books in the Bible, John's writings do that more than any, and they take us straight up there. Well, perhaps we ought to get on and talk about John, but I thought I'd put that little bit in to explain that, yes, uh, 
it's not easy, but it becomes easier if we apply our minds to it. So I said then that there are eight miracles recorded in John. I'll, I'll just mention them. If you just want to jot down the passage, that's fine. The first one was the water which was turned into wine in chapter 2, verses 1. You say through 11, don't you? We say 1 to 11 in our part of the world, so I'll do a little bit of both. Water into wine, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The second sign was the ruler's son that was cured in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. The third sign was the impotent man made strong in chapter 5, verses 1 to 47. The fourth sign is the feeding of the 5,000, which we've just read in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Even if you just get the chapters down, you can at least uh, see what they were afterwards. The following verses, uh, 15 to 21 in chapter 6, is the calming of the sea. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 41, the sight which was given to the blind man. (coughs) Chapter 11, verses 1 to 46, is the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. That caused some problems, particularly with the chief priests who were Sadducees and who didn't believe in a resurrection, and he was a resurrected man. So they sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus. This is how dishonest these people were. And finally, after his resurrection, the eighth sign was the harvest of fish in chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. So John doesn't record (coughs) miracles, although on the surface they were miracles. John says they are signs. The Greek word is semion, and uh, I think we do make a point of that in our in our notes which bit by bit poor old David is feeling an un- under an obligation to do something about I'm sure and uh, yes here's the uh, here it is miracles or signs Greek semion the word indicates a sign mark or token used of miracles as signs of divine authority uh, the significance of semion as a sign is well illustrated in John chapter 6 the verse I've just read you seek me not because you perceived the sign, but because you did eat of the loaves. And uh, the eight signs of John's Gospel are, are listed there, but you can find them anyway. Now having said that then, uh, it's just a new, another facet. Again though, it's going to be the mind of the spirit in some way confronting the mind of the flesh. Okay, we've got John chapter 6. We know the story. Sure, we all know the story. But see, the Lord took every opportunity uh, to do something positive out of a situation. So here's the multitude, and the multitude are hungry. He thought, now, here's an opportunity to teach Philip a lesson. Philip. Philip didn't initially show himself to be very bright in picking up spiritual things. And so the Lord said to him, uh, um, verse 5, he lifted up his eyes and saw a great company. He said to Philip, how are we going to buy bread that these may eat so what was the first thing that Philip thought of because verse 6 says that Jesus knew what he was going to do but he wanted this to to prove Philip Philip's answer is well how much would it cost 
You know, he never thought in terms of the fact that Jesus might have an answer other than dollars and cents. What's it going to cost? 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient. Well, that wasn't an answer. None of them knew the answer. At least Andrew, though, made an attempt. And he said, well, there is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish. Well, I mean, even that would have sounded ridiculous, but Andrew was serious. There's 5,000 people to be fed. And, you know, if you and I saw that and we saw a lad with five barley loaves and two fish, we'd, we'd think it was a joke to say, well, <laughs> there's a lad over here with five barley loaves and two fish. I don't think Andrew said it like that at all. I don't think the disciples acted that way towards the Lord. He said, well, there's a lad here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they amongst so many? So what does the Lord say? Now, okay, <clears throat> let's see how we're going with John's Gospel. Remember how things like the word man became so significant? It wasn't just to say that that was a person of the male gender, it was someone that thinks like natural man. Jesus said, verse 10, make the men uh, sit down. The word men there, by the way, is descriptive of people in a, in a general sense. There is the word man used later on which just means men. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. You know, you wouldn't have thought that John, with this highly elevated spiritual mind he's got, would be particularly concerned about how comfortable it was going to be for them to sit down, would you? Let's just read verse 10 again. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. There was much grass in the place. One of the other records says it was green grass. Where have we come across grass before? Today. First study. All flesh is as grass. And the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Surely the people is grass. You say, oh... You mean, you can read that into that? The answer is yes. And if you're not convinced, we'll just stay with it. Because this is going to be a sign. It's not just multiplying loaves and fishes to fill people's stomachs. It was to be a sign. The fact that there were 5,000, that there were five barley loaves and two fish. Now, I don't know what you've done in the way of study of the significance of Bible numbers, we're not going to do a study this afternoon, so I'll just make statements. Five in the Bible is the number of grace. Don't ask me why at the moment, just take it as being read. You can argue with me later on if you want to, but we haven't got time at the moment. Five is the number of grace. There are 5,000 men there. And when the Lord looked at those men and he saw the grass, he says, they're just the same. The men and the grass, they might as well sit down on the grass because they're going to die like the grass but they can be saved by God's grace. So when he looked, he saw there that there were five barley loaves and two small fish. Where do fish normally live? In the sea. Some of you were around last night when we put up that transparency on the clouds. How are the clouds formed? The clouds are formed by God drawing out of the sea of nations water vapour puts it into clouds and the clouds can become a symbol of the saints let's take another thing 
If the sea represents the nations, well, what are the people in the nations? They're like fish. And they're getting caught in the gospel net. Didn't didn't Lord say to, to his disciples, I'm taking you away from your fishing and I'm going to make you fishers of men. So there's two fish, two fish, Jew and Gentile. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female. So there's Jew and Greek. Now these fish represent those who had to be caught in the gospel net. The five barley loaves, five, the number of grace. Barley loaves, why barley loaves? Well, I'm not going to assume you know this, but so once again I'll just say it. Under the law of Moses, there were certain feasts. One of the important feasts was the Feast of First Fruits. And when you brought along the first of your harvest and you presented it to God, what is the harvest? What is, what is the, the grain that comes in first in the harvest? And uh, I don't know whether you know much about it in this country, but I presume you have crops like wheat and barley and things like that. We certainly have it right around where we live in Adelaide. And I know for a fact that the barley harvest is that which comes in first. So under the law of Moses, it was the barley that was associated with the feast of first fruits. First fruits. Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Afterwards, they that are Christ said he's coming. What's that context found in? Where do we find that? Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ said he's coming. What's Corinthians 15 talking about? Resurrection. The barley loaves associated with the Feast of First Fruits represents resurrection. Now you can fill all of this in. There's notes out called the eight signs of John's Gospel. They're around the place. Get them and read them if you want to. Uh, my notes will say a little bit about this. I'm just trying to summarise it so we can get on with the main thing. I'm submitting to you this. The Lord multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed these people. There were 5,000 people there and they sat down on the grass because that grass represented them. They represented Jew and Gentile, all mankind, who can be saved by God's grace and be resurrected from the dead. Can I prove this? Without any shadow of a doubt. Because every time there was a miracle performed, which John calls a sign, there's always a sequel to it. There's always a discourse comes out of it and that discourse invariably gives you the interpretation of what you were meant to know. Mind you, the people at the time didn't hear this discourse, but in this case they heard it the day later, and it's amazing what they'd forgotten in that 24 hours. You know, They said, show us a sign and we'll believe you. They'd just seen this sign the day before. So, alright, there was the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. But you know something? That wasn't the important part of that sign. Believe it or not, the important part comes when we read verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And when they would, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, 
said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When the Lord said, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost, was he saying, all right, we've just had dinner, we've just had supper, call it what you like. Look, let's tidy up before we get on with the meeting. Just go around and pick up the scraps. Was that what he was saying? No. He says, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Remember that expression. And they filled 12 baskets. 12. 12 is the number of divine government, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. And they filled up 12 baskets full with the bread. No mention of the fish. By the way, they did pick up the fish. One of the other gospel writers tells us this. But John deliberately leaves it out because the fish no longer figure in this story. The fish have been taken out of the sea of nations and once you've been taken out of the sea, you've got to change your form. You're, You're dead. But not so the barley loaves. So there was 12 baskets full of barley, barley loaves, and he says, gather it up that nothing be lost. Now what have I suggested it means? It means this. The barley loaves represent a resurrection from the dead. A resurrection from the dead on the basis of God's grace and it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, the Lord Jesus Christ will ensure that if you really take hold of this gospel as he is presenting it, then you will not be lost. Let's jump across we'll fill in some of the verses in between, to verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, and by this stage we're a bit familiar with that expression, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Where did you hear that before? Verse 12, gather up the fragments that nothing be lost. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. They'll be resurrected. Now, this is just a couple of verses out of the sequel to the sign. Can you see now why we're saying that when you, in John's Gospel, read these eight miracles, John says, you've got to see the sign behind it. There was a message. And in all cases, the message will be conveyed somewhere later. Very often it starts with words like verily, verily. Tomorrow morning we're going to look at that and we're going to see there was the curing of the blind man and John chapter 10, all about the good shepherd, starts with verily, verily. The story about the good shepherd is the sequel to the curing of the blind man. Now what we've got here is Jesus Christ as the bread of life. He says, all that the Father has given me, I should lose nothing, There it is in verse 12, gather up the fragments that nothing be lost, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Twice he said about the resurrection. 
I think I ought to take questions at this point because that's a fairly quick overview of the uh, fourth sign of John's Gospel and it's probably presented one or two new points. Um, Any questions in regard to that that can just be sort of straightforward, simple, one-sentence answers, which I don't think I've ever been able to give in my life, even if it's yes or no, but let's try. Anything you'd like to say or ask? To what extent, uh, John being the apostle that Jesus loved, helps him have kind of an intuitive insight into some of these things that he's written? Uh, Chuck, I think the question is also the answer. Uh, Chuck made the point, you may have all heard it, that John was described as the disciple which Jesus loved. Why did he love him? Well, it wasn't that he was necessarily the most energetic. Peter seemed to be always up and doing. But it seemed that John did have the ability to grasp these things perhaps quicker than a Philip or other. And therefore, the Lord specifically chose John, or perhaps we should say the Father or whoever, to write this particular gospel, also to write those epistles and also to receive the book of Revelation. That's the three things of John and they all present to us the same thinking and I think, that is, I think that is the way we would see it. We don't know all the twelve apostles well but it does appear that John did have that ability to perceive some of those things perhaps quicker than others. Okay, well... Um, Okay, yes. Could you please expound just a little bit more on verse, the significance of verse 12 and 13, the gathered up, the nothing be lost, just expound on that just a little bit more. Okay. When we, when we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we, we assume that the most important thing in that miracle was the fact that 5,000 people were fed from five loaves and two fish. The fact that there was something left over and they gathered it up afterwards seems to be insignificant. The fact is that in the sequel to the sign and in the dissertation we get, and we'll hear more about the verses in between in a moment, what the Lord is saying is the important thing as far as that miracle is concerned and the sign was not so much the multiplication but what was left over afterwards, the product of it. In other words, those people were fed But after they'd been fed, there were 12 baskets full of loaves. And therefore, the emphasis is really on that which remained, and particularly because verse 12 says, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Now, you see, that nothing be lost meant, I don't want to lose any of the bread. But when we go over to verse um, verse 39, the Lord said, you know what those barley loaves represented? That represented men and women who are going to be part of the kingdom of God, 12 baskets full, and they're not going to be lost. The Father has given them to me. Now, just tuck that given to me away because I'm saving that for the exhort tomorrow morning. It's an expression that comes about six or seven times in John 17. A very beautiful expression. I don't want to deal with it at the moment. But he does say it here. The Father has given these people to me And if he's given them to me, I will lose none of them. Now, the twelve baskets full of bread, gather it up that nothing be lost. He says, therefore, in verse 39, I should lose nothing. Now, the fact that it was five barley loaves, and we've said that barley was associated with the first fruits or resurrection, 
the Lord then goes on to say, but I should raise it up again at the last day. So we're suggesting therefore that the, the sign associated with the miracle, there's no doubt it was a miracle, but John says forget about the miracle, let's look through it and see what the sign was. The sign was that the Lord is calling people to be part of the kingdom of God. They will be associated with him who is the bread of life. They will be given to him as that elder son in the family to care for and he will ensure that none of them are lost but that they will be raised up at the last day. And he builds that out of the twelve baskets full of bread. Now you see this is another little study uh, that sometimes you might go to a Bible school and someone will do for a whole week just the eight signs of John's Gospel and and just pick out the, the water into wine, the nobleman's son that was healed because each of those is teaching some lesson over and above the fact that the Lord was a miracle worker. I think the answer will also become a bit clearer when we come in a moment to see how the people reacted to this because I've jumped you right over to the conclusion because I was getting impatient. I, I wanted to get there quickly because I, I think that's such a wonderful connection but I haven't shown you the connection. But we'll do that. Right, verses 15 to 21 we're leaving out. It's actually the fifth sign. This is the stilling of the storm. So what happens is one day then we have this miracle slash sign. Jesus perceived, verse 15, that they would come and take him by force, so he departed uh, into uh, a mountain himself alone and then he entered into a ship and he went over the sea towards Capernaum and then he arrived on the other side. Still the storm and I'm not saying anything about it. 22, we pick up. We're now going to see the sequel to the feeding of the 5,000. And once again we're going to see a situation where we've got the Lord saying certain things and other people responding in a way in which it hardly looks as though they're holding a conversation because they seem to be talking about two different things. But we've got used to that by now. 22. The day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that whereinto his disciples were entered and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat but that his disciples were gone away alone because you see the Lord had walked up the water and stilled the storm. Howbeit, says verse 23, there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. This is a very long sentence. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, now wait, stop there, what do you think will be the classic question? Uh, how did you get here? When did you get here? So what's the Lord going to say? Oh, I arrived here at uh, 10 o'clock last night and I happened to walk on the water. Is he going to tell them that? Of course he's not, not in John's Gospel. What's the use of telling them that? That was, how, how did you get here? When did you get here? So the latter part of that verse, verse 25, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So he looks through them and he says, you're following me for the wrong reason. So he says, verse 26, verily, verily. Now this verily, verily never starts a story. It's always 
a sequel to something else. Truly, truly, I'm saying to you, you seek me not because you perceived the signs. That's how that should be translated. The, the word miracle is semion. You're seeking me not because you perceived the signs, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labour not for the food which perishes, but for that food which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. That's right. Yep, you're following me for the wrong reason. Okay, now, how do they understand this language? You know, labour not for the meat which perishes. You know, food, labour not. So, labour for the meat that doesn't perish. So, being good Jews, with apology to anybody who might have Jewish background, they think, ah, works, works of law. We've got to obey law. We've got to do something. So what we read then in verse 38, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? So there's something I've got to do to earn this. Listen to the Lord's answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Strange answer, isn't it? Work, believe, they're not, it's not really equated. They said, what do we do? What's some work we can do? He's saying, in effect, you're not going to be justified by works, you're going to be justified by faith. And the word faith and belief are the same word in the Greek, it's just our English problem. So see the lesson he's trying to tell them. When did you get here? Doesn't answer that. You're following me for the wrong reason. You're following me because... Not because you perceived the sign, but because I filled your stomachs with bread. What you want to work for is the bread that lasts to everlasting life. Well, well what's that work? What, what work can we do? You've got to believe. You've got to be justified by faith, not by works. So they thought, oh, well, okay. Verse 30. They said therefore unto him, this is incredible, I, I can't believe this verse. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? I mean, it's 24 hours ago. They saw it. They followed him all the way around the lake. All they were interested in was, when did you get here? And when he starts to tell them they've got to believe something, they say, well, look, if, if you expect us to believe you, you better show us a sign. Well, they added to it. They didn't stop there. What they said was, and what a wonderful opportunity the Lord had. I mean, the Lord would have, whatever they said, the Lord would have picked it up and turned it back on them. But how beautifully this comes out. This is, for example, verse 31 he says, they say. Now, let's read verse 30 so we get the flow of it. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Much to say, now Moses gave us bread from heaven. You show us a sign and we'll believe you. Well, that's what they said. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. 
Well, let's stop there for a moment. See again, a classic conversation, isn't it? The Lord up here, talking spiritual language, and these people down here thinking food, stomach. The woman of Samaria says, I come here to draw water every day. The Lord says, well, if you ask me, I'd give you water that springs up to everlasting life. And she said, well, how do I get that? That saves me coming back every day. Labour not for the meat which perisheth, the bread which perisheth, but that which lasts unto everlasting life. Lord, give us this bread. Well, what do we have to do? What work have we got to do? You've got to believe on me. Okay, we'll believe on you if you show us a sign. For example, Moses gave us bread from heaven. So the Lord says, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. You know the word true is normally used in opposition to false, isn't it? Was the bread in the wilderness false bread? No, it was real. So do we know uh, uh, how the word true is sometimes used in the Bible as opposed to something else? True as opposed to, for example, the true bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle, true as opposed to typical, type or shadow. You know, the law of Moses was a shadow of good things to come. Christ was the substance. So Christ is the true bread. What he's saying is that that bread you got back in the wilderness or your father's got was a type of myself. Now, if you'd have understood the type, you'd understand what I'm doing here. Now, I've got one transparency for tonight and again, this is not one that I've generated. You'll find it in Eureka Volume 1 under the heading of uh, the hidden manor called the hidden manner. Now what I want to do is to, there's two parts to this transparency. There's the story of the giving of the bread in the wilderness and then looking at the antitype, how there were four stages in the giving of the bread in the wilderness and there were four stages in the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ as the true bread from heaven was revealed. Let's take the top one first. In Exodus chapter 16, you can turn the verses up if you like, but we're going to summarise them here. In verse 10, we are told that Israel saw the glory of Yahweh appear in a cloud as they looked toward the wilderness. So they looked to the wilderness and they saw the glory of God coming in. Step number two. At evening time, they received flesh to eat. God sent the quails in verses 12 and 13. In the morning... After the dew had gone up, the bread from heaven appeared on the ground. So after the dew had gone up, that's important, the bread from heaven, and God always called it bread from heaven, or the bread of the mighty, it appeared on the ground and the children of Israel said, what is it? Which in Hebrew is manna. And for 40 years, every morning except on the Sabbath, they said, all right, Let's all go out and we've got to pick up some more of that, um, what is it? Alright? And the step, fourth step is, they beheld the glory and they received that bread for 40 years until they came to the land of promise. But they didn't understand what they were eating. In fact, they loathed it. They said, we loathe this bread. But it was always called manna. They called it manna. What is it? It's not very hard to see 
that these people were looking at this man and saying, Mamma, who is he? What is it? They didn't understand him any better than the Jews in the wilderness understood that that bread that was on the ground after the Jew had gone up, we'll deal with that, was actually the bread from heaven. So he says, I'm the true bread. This was a type of me. So if you'd understood the type, you would understand me. Notice how he's building on and building on and building on. He doesn't go back and say, look, let's take this simply. Let me explain it to you. You're following him for the wrong reason. You want me to show you a sign? And he keeps building on and building on. Well, let's see the counterpart. Can you, can you see the bottom if I leave it there or do you prefer the bottom part up? Do you want it up? Uh, you want it up, okay. So just remember then that what the top four look like. The counterpart to step number one, that Israel looked towards the wilderness and saw the glory of God, when the true bread appeared, the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel looked toward the wilderness and there they saw the forerunner of the true bread declaring that the glory of God was about to be revealed. We read about him, didn't we, in John chapter 1. John the Baptist, you know, uh, the forerunner, uh, and declaring that the glory of God was about to appear. Back there under the type, we read that at evening time they got flesh to eat. The Mosaic age was about to come to an end. We, they were living in the evening time of that Mosaic age. And in the evening time of the Mosaic age, they saw the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God or the Word made flesh who appeared to take away the sin of the world. So in the evening time of the Mosaic age, Jesus Christ appeared as flesh and he was to be sacrificed. But that wasn't what they were to eat for 40 years. It was in the morning after the Jew had gone up now, those of you who may remember or were here late last night and saw that transparency I put up about the clouds, remember the formation of the clouds, the second stage of the clouds was the sun of righteousness would shine down upon the dew of the morning. Isaiah 26 speaks about uh, uh, the dew from heaven. Uh, sorry, here it is, Isaiah 26 verse 19. The dew is a symbol of the resurrection. So, on the resurrection morn, after the Jew had gone up, if you like, the true bread was revealed as that which giveth life unto the world. So he was telling them that what they had to eat of in a spiritual sense was not Jesus there and then, but the resurrected Jesus. See how resurrection now is becoming an important theme right through this. It's the five barley loaves to start with. That nothing be lost. Now he's saying what you've got to partake of is the living Christ. It's not just a dead Christ. If Christ had died and remained in the grave, his sacrifice would have been worthless. But it's his life. His life of obedience and his resurrected life, we are saved by his, by his life, as the Apostle Paul says. So for 40 years, a lifetime of probation, we must partake of the living word and this will bring a believer to the promised land that is an end to the pilgrimage in this wilderness of life and an entry into the glories of the kingdom. So what we've got there is what the Lord was trying to teach in that sign. Now you can apply this sort of thing to, to all of the signs of, of John's Gospel.
he picked it up from the very words which they had used in verse 32 or verse 31 rather our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat and what Jesus is saying is Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven what you got you called manna and it wasn't something that was going to last for everlasting life but I am the true bread that was a type of me in the book of Hebrews Christ is described as the true tabernacle the tabernacle in the wilderness was a type of him a shadow of him now it's after this then that we come to these words that I jumped to very quickly we're back in John chapter 6 Jesus says in verse 35 I am the bread of life he that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst but I said unto you that you also have seen me and you believe not all that the father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me and this is the father's will which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day he's saying did you understand what that sign was all about now we haven't finished yet we haven't got a long way to go but we're going to jump down to something a little bit later in the chapter how are we at that point that we got the general thrust of it if you've got the general thrust of it don't worry too much about some little details we can pick that up, that up in discussion afterwards or you can get it out of notes but I want to just try and get the general thrust this weekend so that by tomorrow morning we're ready for the exhortation which comes through okay we can now start to feel more with the Lord than with the people and we can start to see how spiritually blind they were but you know if we'd have been with that crowd how much better would we have been and in fact, did John himself see it at that time? Did Peter? Did James? Did Philip? What did they see? We don't know. But I suspect that in many respects they weren't much better than the, than the average uh, disciple. But of course this is being written afterwards. Well, lots of things therefore are said, but there's a, there's a bit of a, a furore over this um, and the Lord instead of saying well let's, let's make things a bit easier we read in verse 52 he said that he was the living bread we'll read, we'll read from verse 51 he says I am the living bread which came down from heaven if any man eat of this bread he shall live forever and the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This would be an abhorrent. I mean, they're thinking naturally, aren't they? So, does Jesus help them? Well, what he says is, verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here we come again. And I will raise him up at the last day. Oh, imagine how the, the Jews took that. I mean, the law of Moses said you couldn't partake of blood. And he's saying we've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, 
You see, he seems to be making it harder. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Verse 57. As the Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat, what is it? And are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying, who can hear it? So, what does the Lord do? Does he take his disciples aside and say, Okay, I've made it too hard for you, let me explain it. What does he say? You find that hard? Well, try this. Verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? Does this cause you to stumble? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And we read then subsequently, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him because they weren't weren't wanting that sort of talk. Well, what did he mean when he said, what and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Well, the answer is, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. Nicodemus had been taught that. The woman of Samaria had been taught that. You've got to worship in spirit and in truth. You've got to be born of the spirit. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak are spirit and are life. But how could the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Was the Lord Jesus Christ ever in heaven? No. In what sense did he come down from heaven in a physical sense? Well, the Holy Spirit came down and overshadowed Mary. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. He was born. He lived his life of obedience. He died. He rose. He was changed to spirit nature and he ascended up to heaven. So spirit came down in one form and he was created and spirit ascended in another form. But it was still spirit. The spirit of God came down The Spirit of God went back, but just in a different form. But he says, what you've got to learn is that whilst we are here now, it's my words that are going to save you because my words, they are spirit and they are life. And most of them said, well, we we want something different from this. Now, I could understand if some of you are saying, well, I can understand what these people are saying. This is hard. But look, we've got the interpretation. We've got now the record that John wrote afterwards telling us what these people should have seen. It wasn't there then and I can understand how they would have gone back. So, I think we'll leave it at that for this evening. What we've endeavoured to do today is to see that John presents to us two types of thinking, the thinking of the spirit and the thinking of the flesh. And he gives us illustrations in which the Lord is speaking as God would speak. He's looking at people as God would see us. And therefore he just goes straight through our questions and he says, this is your real problem. The real problem is you haven't got enough of the word of God in your mind so that every time somebody says something to you, you interpret it according to the flesh. Philip, you say, how many dollars and cents is it going to cost? Woman of Samaria, that'll save me coming to the well every day. 
Nicodemus, look, I've come by night, give me this answer and then I can go away and, and I, I can tell the Jews what I want to tell them. That was all the reasoning of the flesh. So in every case, the Lord was intent on endeavouring to teach them that the words that he spoke were spirit and life and that he that worships God must believe that he is, that he is a spirit and that they must worship him in spirit and in truth. May it be, God willing, therefore, that tomorrow when we come together, that as a result of our studies today, just a little bit more growth that all of us, myself included, going over these things, I can leave it for a couple of days, same as everybody else, it, it just goes out. So you keep reinforcing it and therefore when we come together in worship tomorrow, it might be with that desire to see these words of spirit give us some words of spiritual exhortation.